Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, do you notice anything different about me? Well, not right now. You're using your normal voice now that we're recording. But before we started recording, you sounded like, uh, you know, uh, one of those uh, impersonators of like a Rockefeller or, uh, or you know, an Astor or uh, a Vanderbilt. You were saying, you know, like, oh, hello, Jack. It's so good to see you this afternoon. So I, did, I didn't know what that was about. One word, Jack, Yale. Oh, that, <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. You are now uh, a a fancy member of uh, the Ivory Tower Elite. You're teaching a class at Yale. I am indeed. So I am teaching one seminar, and it is on the politics of public education. I'm really excited about it. But Jack, I have to tell you that when I mention this to people, they are so impressed by those four <laughs> letters. And then what happens is that. I know I'm going to get that reaction. And so then I start trying to figure out ways to like, how can I work this into conversation so I can blurt out the fact that I'm teaching at Yale. Oh, I'm and so exhausted commuting back from New Haven. <laughs> exactly. Why were or, you in New Haven, Jennifer? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> or working in, you know, Connecticut style pizza. And so I, I'm very aware that after my one week of teaching that I am now part of the problem. You are. You are. But just think that you've been rewarded with so much greater access to Frank Pepe's clam pies. That is really true. Well, all this sets the stage for today's episode, which is almost impossibly timely. Yeah, we're going to be talking with Will Bunch, the author of a book, the subtitle of which is, how do you like that for for not giving the title of a book? (laughs) But it's the subtitle that's so relevant right now, uh, or that's so telling, right? How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics. And when we booked him, we had no idea that the Biden administration was going to pass massive college debt relief, though it was, of course, possible to anticipate that if they did that, there'd be fierce pushback from Republicans who would use that to fan the flames of the culture war. So uh, it's really timely that we're talking with him today. And I can't say enough good things about the book. And I know that at this point, you know, like that's such a cliche. I'm always, could I be any more excited about any of the authors we have? You're on? always but this, breathlessly enthusiastic. It, it really, it's such, uh, uh, Will is a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And the book is just, it's beautifully written. But what I so appreciate about it is how he takes these various threads that we often treat as separate and weaves them together into what I think is a really compelling account of what's gone so wrong in our country. And Jack, you didn't mention the title of the book. It's After the Ivory Tower Falls. And can I just say that I hope I'm not in it when that happens? (laughs) Yeah, you picked a bad time. You climbed pretty high too, didn't you?
Now to the main event. Will Bunch is the national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and the author of an impossibly timely new book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. Will has been covering politics for years. He's written books about the Tea Party movement and the legacy of Ronald Reagan. In other words, Will has a lot of opinions. But this book was inspired by a question. I was seeing something that I didn't quite understand, and, and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. And what that was really was just the national drift to the right, particularly during the, the George W. Bush years, trying to understand the roots of modern conservatism. My kids were in grade school, and you know, like a lot of two-income families, you know, we, we did some crazy juggling. So I, I had to steal at work to do a split shift at work where I went in dashed home to pick up my kids, spent a couple hours with them, then went back into the office to like write my story. So the, the upshoot of that was I was spending three hours in the car. He put all that time in the car to good use by tuning into what was then a new phenomenon, right-wing talk radio. Rush Limbaugh was on right when I was leaving work to go pick up my kids. So I would listen to him every day. And, and what struck me was just the tone of resentment and grievance and who it was directed at. The media, which obviously caught my attention as, as a journalist, and at academia, college professors, creative types, Hollywood movie stars. I also thought a lot about who it wasn't being directed at. You know, it wasn't being directed at, you know, CEOs or the wealthy. The macro trend at this time, I mean, was outsourcing jobs to Mexico, China, factory layoffs. And, you know, your logical brain thinks, well, if I was a worker, I would be so mad at these corporate honchos, you know, shipping my jobs overseas. And and that's who they weren't mad at at all. Instead, they were mad at this intermediate layer, right? The professional managerial class. Then in 2009, when Will was at work on his book about the Tea Party movement, he attended a gathering called the Knob Creek Machine Gun Shoot in rural Kentucky. It was the early months of Obama's presidency, and Will spent the weekend hanging around with militia types and a range of disaffected conservatives. And the big topic was Obama's just-announced Nobel Peace Prize. This group felt strongly that he hadn't done anything to deserve it. A view Will kind of shared, but that's not the point. What surprised Will was the nature of the resentment that he heard voiced in Kentucky that weekend. Yes, it was about race, but that wasn't the only thing. What really struck me was that a lot of the resentment towards Obama was not, obviously, of course, race is a factor. And, you know, obviously, you know, the first black president, and that's the thing that gets played up. But I really felt there was a lot of resentment towards him because of the educational opportunities. You know, here's a guy who, you know, because he was this, you know, good-looking, smart-talking African-American, you know, he, he got these opportunities to go to, you know, Columbia and, 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 and Harvard Law School and all these places. And the educational resentment, the resentment of elites which had a racial component to it, but it really transcended race. I felt that people were talking past this, you know, that that the real dividing line was becoming people who had college degrees, people who had the opportunity to go to college, and people, people who didn't. As I was reading Will's book, I happened to see a poll that perfectly captures the realignment that he was trying to make sense of. The poll was on a proposed millionaire's tax in Massachusetts, where I live. Now, hiking taxes on the very wealthy turns out to be a really popular initiative, except among two groups, the very wealthy and people who didn't go to college. So how did we get here? That's really the question at the heart of Will's book. 
this whole idea of how people in their tribalism really vote against what they're supposed to vote for would be their economic interests. In the last couple of presidential elections, you had the majority of people making more than $200,000 voting for the Democrats who ran on a platform of taxing people who make more than $200,000, which is the flip side of what has been so often discussed about how blue-collar, working-class, rural voters and Rust Belt voters would benefit so much from expanded health care or certainly expanded college opportunities, the things that their Republican candidates that they're voting for you know, are fighting tooth and nail. You know, you really have this unusual situation where tribalism and, and, and it's really with each passing year, it's just organizing more and more around educational attainment. This is the fall line, education. And I think we're at a place right now where there's more and more understanding that, that education is the political fault line in America. But I think my book is trying to fill a void that there hasn't been much analysis both of how did this happen? You know, what what it's not a normal expected thing. So what what drove this? And then the flip side is what do we do about it? To understand how education became our fault line, Will hits the road, starting in Gambier, Ohio. It's one of those liberal college towns that now stands out as a tiny speck of blue in a sea of post-industrial heartland red. And he goes back in time, not literally, of course, but to understand the modern history of college in the U.S., starting with the GI Bill, the 1944 legislation that offered full college tuition and other benefits to troops coming home from the war. It really was kind of the spark for the idea that, you know, the American dream had been just generally prosperity, you know, to do better than to do better than your parents' generation, perhaps. And now it really transformed to where college was seen as the vehicle for making that happen. Now in America, if you were going to do better than than your parents did, you were probably going to want to try and shoot for going to college. This kicked off a golden age because the GI Bill flowed right into the baby boom. So the campuses that had to expand to accommodate all these veterans just kept growing and kept hiring professors and kept building high-rise dorms. In a time of, of higher taxes and, and more government revenues, the states that are the main engines of public universities had the funds to do this, and it was politically popular. You know, there wasn't a college divide like we have now. Every, everybody, you know, regardless of their politics, you know, supported the idea of expanding college opportunities. College enrollment exploded, increasing something like sixfold. And it's almost impossible to believe now, but public universities like the University of California or the City University of New York were essentially free. And Will says that for a brief moment, that view that college was a public good, like K 12 education, almost took hold. College almost became a public good. Harry Truman had this commission, the Truman Commission, that, that looked at ways to increase federal involvement. But just kind of like on abortion, how we never codified Roe versus Wade when we maybe had an opportunity, you know, we never codified free or nearly free higher education uh, when we had maybe a political moment that we could have done that. Because it, it didn't seem important because tuition was so low anyway. It wasn't, wasn't really seen as a problem. Uh, unfortunately, you know, not locking it in then sets the stage for what, for what we have today. So Jack, Will has some fascinating history in his book about the GI Bill, and I realized reading it how little I knew. I've always known that there was this thing called the GI Bill and that people came home from the war and it enabled them to go to college. That's literally all I know. Yeah, I think that's probably what most people know. And, you know, that gets you part of the way there. Uh, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act uh, was signed into law by FDR in 1944. And 
it aimed to do a lot of things for returning veterans that had not been done for veterans returning from the First World War. Uh, so to help them purchase housing, um, to secure adequate medical care for them, to train them for jobs, uh, right? That's the sort of readjustment part. And also to provide education. And the education piece is really what most people know the GI Bill for. And one thing that I think is really important in the context of this conversation to mention is that prior to that, most Americans weren't even getting high school diplomas, uh, right? So if we go back to the 1920s and 30s, right, even graduating from high school was something that conferred a certain level of status. Going to college, right, particularly getting a four-year degree was something that really only a small handful of elites uh, were doing. And so the really interesting thing about the GI Bill is that it made college less elite. In fact, there's this fabulous phrase that I think I'm remembering correctly uh, issued by University of Chicago President Robert Maynard Hutchins who expressed this fear that the GI Bill was going to turn colleges and universities into hobo jungles, um, which I just think is fabulous. Um, Hutchins is famous for lots of things, but I hope that people now know him for hobo jungles. Um, and, and then the other thing that I think is really interesting in light of this conversation about the GI Bill is not just that it made going to college less elite, but it framed higher education as a right rather than a privilege. So up until that point, right, Americans were guaranteed K-12 schooling, right, funded by taxpayer dollars as long as they could, you know, maintain adequate grades and stay in school. Um, higher education then and now, right, is not guaranteed to everybody, but for returning GIs, it was. And this was a game changer for roughly two and a half million returning GIs. Eight million used the GI Bill for education of some kind, right? Mostly job training, uh, yeah, vocational training in schools. But two and a half million went to college, and that was a huge number. And for a short period of time, it really reframed higher education in the U.S., Thank you, Jack. That was really helpful. And I, for one, am going to have trouble forgetting Hobo Jungle. <laughs> that's, that's good. I, I, uh, I've, I've done my job here. Back to Will Bunch and after the Ivory Tower falls, that golden age he was telling us about, well, surprise, it didn't last. The seeds of the backlash that still rages today were already present. As students flooded into college in mid-century, they weren't seeking vocational skills, but a so-called liberal education, things like English literature, philosophy, you know, the life of the mind. And in the growing debate over what college was for, the life of the mind crew actually had an edge for a moment. Partly because the 20th century had been so traumatic. You'd had the Great Depression, you'd had World War One, and then World War II. You'd had the rise of fascism, the rise of you know totalitarian communism in the USSR. And liberal education was seen as a force for, for democracy. What's fascinating about this story and what, what I really get into writing about in the book is the fact that this was kind of the seeds of, of the backlash because what happened is 
it was like liberal education worked too well almost, right? You know, you had this young young generation of college students who were excited. They were excited about democracy. You know, it was the era of JFK and the Peace Corps and Camelot and all of those things. And But people started to see the hypocrisy that existed in American democracy. We had racial apartheid in, in the South, which was really kind of the initial impetus for, for campus protests. And that flowed into, into the Vietnam War and, and this whole idea of, of U.S. imperialism which was very closely linked to a lot of the funding the campus campuses were getting, you know, for military research and, and, and whatnot. Famously, college campuses became the nexus of political protest in the 1960s, and that triggered a tremendous backlash from, from the establishment, from conservatives, and it led to the rise of Ronald Reagan. It, it helped elect Richard Nixon in 1968, and it started forces that we still live under today. The ensuing backlash on the right wasn't just directed at what kids were learning, but who was paying for it. Something else that feels very familiar right now. There was an ideological push around the fact that liberal education was bad for the American values that conservatives wanted to promote. I mean, Ronald Reagan came out and said it famously in 1967. He said, I, you know, he said at a news conference, I don't think taxpayers should be subsidizing the intellectual curiosity of young people. I mean, that's that's the mission statement right there. I mean, that if you want to understand the backlash, that's the backlash. Up through 1967, it was, yes, we want, we want our young people to be intellectually curious. We want them to become critical thinkers because we think we think that's going to help us avoid World War III. And in the usual, you know, we're going to build a knowledge economy of smart people and, and all of those good things that come from intellectual curiosity. And now you have the man who would become the leader of modern conservatism saying, no, intellectual curiosity. If you want to do it on your own time, I guess it's okay. Which brings us to our combustible, privatized present. At the same time that college became an economic necessity, we shifted the burden of paying for it onto individuals and their families. I guess as a young journalist in the 90s, you know, privatization to me meant that, you know, City Hall, you know, fired all the janitors and brought in a, a janitorial company to, to, to clean City Hall. I mean, to me, that's what privatization meant. And it doesn't mean exactly that in higher education. What, what we're really talking about is that the burden for higher education is being put on individuals. And it's it's not a public good. The contrast between K through 12 education in America and higher education couldn't be more clear. In your hometown, everybody pays for your hometown schools, even if you don't have kids, your kids are grown, everybody gets a free public education until, until age 18. Then at 18, the switch is turned, right? If you want to go any higher than that, now you're responsible. So families are, are forced to make these difficult choices, right? How, how much is this degree going to be worth it in the long run? You know, it's the cost of even attending the public universities in my state is more than our budget. So we can either borrow the money and assume that with this degree, you know, our children will have the kind of lives where they can earn enough money to pay the loans back and it'll, and it'll pay off in the long run, or it's too risky. The election of Donald Trump in 2016 inspired countless think pieces about economic anxiety. But Will says that misses something essential about the way that many Trump voters view college. This is really something that is a big part of the of the current mindset, particularly among the working middle class, the, the kind of lower and middle middle class of America. This phrase I kept coming across in doing my research is 
college is, quote, a risky gamble, unquote. There was an excellent study in a, published in The Atlantic right after Trump's election in 2016, digging into some of the data of who supported Trump and why. And uh, this researcher said that the biggest factor he found was something that he described as economic fatalism. This knowledge economy and, and, and the college that you need to, to experience to get into the knowledge economy is just it's not for our. It's not for our family. It's you know. It's too risky. We can't afford it. And but as a result, you know, we're not going to ever get ahead either. You know, it's not anxiety. In other words, it's fatalism, right? So that kind of explains how we got to where we're at. Jack, as I've been following the debate mostly on Twitter, and you see this, you know, this pushback against the idea of student debt relief, and again and again, kind of this tone, like, well, you chose this path, so why are you complaining? And I kind of wonder sometimes if people have any idea just how insistent the College for All drumbeat has been. And so if you go into, say, any urban school in the, really, in the in 2000 forward, you're going to find like a relentless narrative about going to college. I think this way of thinking really reached its peak in the waning days of Rahm Emanuel's tenure as mayor of Chicago. And he basically said, hey, you know what, Chicago public school students, you can't graduate unless you have an acceptance offer in your hand. There were a couple of other things you could do. You could show that you've been accepted to the military or into some kind of a trade program. But it was this insistence that that kids had to go to college, but also it couldn't be any college, right? Like that the real mark of success was to go someplace further away, someplace more uh, that, you know, took fewer kids and was hence more expensive. And so I just, you know, when I see people kind of tweeting like, well, what did you think was going to happen? I just, (laughs) I feel like they don't really understand the culture of K-12 that has evolved over the last, say, decade and a half, two decades. Yeah. And I actually want to go back a little further and connect it to our earlier discussion about the GI Bill, because the GI Bill was about rights. And one of the rights was the right to higher education. And uh, there was, as I mentioned, this opportunity to rethink higher education in the U.S. as an extension of the K-12 system. And that isn't what happened. Uh, A part of the reason for that is that there was this surprising upshot to the GI Bill and the money that it channeled to colleges and universities uh, for the education of returning servicemen. And that's that it paid for itself. And the explanation, which there's lots of evidence to support, is that it led to unprecedented human capital development, right? And so basically that just means that people ended up with more skills and were able to do different kinds of jobs and earn a higher income than they would have been able to without that education. And Congress found in a study that the increases in taxation alone, right, people paying higher income taxes because of higher earnings, paid for the program. So if you're thinking like an economist, and if you don't know what I mean by that, revisit our episode with Beth Pop Berman. If you're thinking like an economist, it makes sense to say that the lesson here is that it makes economic sense to send everyone to college, right? And this is different from saying that everyone has a right to go to college, right? This is, hey, education is the engine of our economy, 
and we can grow wealth by promoting it. And that, that's not wrong. It's just a very particular framing of things. And I think we reached the apotheosis of that federally in the Obama administration. And so in preparation for this, I, I just pulled up something from the Obama years about higher education. Uh, and it says, earning a post-secondary degree or credential is no longer just a pathway to opportunity for a talented few. Rather, it is a prerequisite for the growing jobs of the new economy, right? And that's the message that was being sent to K-12 educators across the nation, right? That was the drumbeat, was if we are going to grow our stock of human capital, which is going to benefit individuals and it's going to benefit the economy, and we've got Arne Duncan and Barack Obama on the record repeatedly saying this, but of course, right, you can hear Bill Clinton saying it, you can hear George H.W. and George W. Bush saying this, right? If this is the drumbeat, of course schools are going to pick up on that, right? Of course schools are going to be encouraging young people to do whatever is being framed as the most successful possible outcome for them, the best possible pathway. And I think this then goes a long way to explaining how we end up in this place where, you know, young people end up doing what they've been told to do in order to be successful. And lo and behold, right? It doesn't work exactly that way. And by the way, they might have studied something different if they had known that they were going to be saddled with debt. And, and once more, this is very different than framing it as a right, than fully funding it and saying, hey, this is something you deserve, right? In the same way that returning GIs got it, study what you want. The outcomes will probably be positive, but this is something that you deserve as a citizen of this country. Back to Will, what makes After the Ivory Tower Falls such a compelling read is the big picture Will paints. How, in his words, a half century of bad decisions and generational change sliced America into fourths like a lazy pizza cutter. I love that image. We're divided into groups that he calls the left broke, the left out, the left behind, and the left perplexed. Those would be the folks like Will and I who attended college when it was much cheaper and optimism abounded. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, really the 70s really is when I went to high school. And then really for a generation or two up until that time, I think that the term you would associate with college was hope. This was an exciting opportunity to, to build yourself up. And I think in the last 20 years, the emotion that's associated with college is, isn't hope, but it's fear, right? What do I have to do to get in or, or, or get my kid into, into the right school? How am I going to pay for it? Am I, am I saving enough? Should I you know, forget about retirement and, and, and put all my funds? towards making sure that my kid gets to college, you know, and then I'll just have to just keep working until I die or whatever to, to, to keep my, keep the next generation in the middle class. You know, it cuts both ways. If, if, if you're in the half of America that's oriented towards college, you've got those concerns. And then if you're in the half of America that's not oriented towards college, you've got the concerns of what kind of life is there going to be? You know, what, what kind of opportunities am I, am I going to even have? Are people looking down on me? You know, our leaders have declared that America is a meritocracy. And really, more than anything else, whether you have a college degree is, is become the kind of ultimate badge of merit. That means that if you're part of the 63% of Americans without college degrees, you're essentially being told that you lack merit. Don't think that's not felt. That's very much felt. I mean, that's, 
That's so much of the driving force behind resentment politics, which is the driving force behind Trumpism and climate change denial, which is terrible, and QAnon and all these other social ills. Start with this resentment of elites or this distrust that elites are the kind of people who, uh, yeah, would, you know, be child abusers or, dr or drink the blood of babies or whatever, because that's how much I hate elites that I'm willing to believe that about, about those people. A few weeks ago, Will had a great column in the Philadelphia Inquirer about how Biden's proposed student debt relief plan is a baby step towards fixing higher education and reclaiming it as a public good. So that's the good news. The bad news is that the conservative political backlash that succeeded in privatizing higher education in the first place is now coming for K-12 education. For Ronald Reagan, it was campus protests. For today's conservatives, it was the 2020 George Floyd protests. The George Floyd protests were these, this remarkable turning point because these fears that we've, we've been talking about that were applied to college about liberal education and people's curiosity and turning against the hypocrisy of, of the U.S. government. When the George Floyd protests happened, you have to remember these places like Mount Vernon, Ohio, where I went for my book in, in Knox County, Ohio, had had a huge Black Lives Matters march. I think seven, 700 people turned out in this Again, in this county that went, you know, 70% for Donald Trump, you know, these people, and, and I'm being, being maybe slightly facetious, but I think a lot of these conservative Republicans look at their own kids or, or, their, or, their, or their neighbor's kids leading these Black Lives Matter marches, and they, and they said, where are they learning this? They're not learning this in, from me <laughs> or at home, obviously. We, we don't believe these things. It, they must be getting indoctrinated in their school. Which brings us to what may be the greatest irony of our present moment, that even as there is now widespread acknowledgement that shifting the cost of college onto the backs of individual quote-unquote consumers has been a disaster, the idea that that's how we should fund K-12 education is actually gaining currency. In fact, the GOP candidate for governor in Will's own state of Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, wants to fund students, not systems, in the current parlance, while also eliminating the property taxes that pay for schools. What could go wrong? I think Mastriano is kind of the avatar of taking this to the next level and just really going after the, the guts of K-12 education, you know, the funding and how to basically make it privatized. This is almost like the right giving up on public schools. We want to set up a system that anybody who's conservative is probably going to want to either send their kid to a religious school or homeschool their child and not go to these public schools where, where we claim they're being indoctrinated. If lightning struck somehow and Mastriano gets elected in November, I don't know if he could convince his entire Republican legislature to go along with something extreme. I mean, even even many Republicans, as we know, actually like their public schools. Not not every Republican voter buys into this extreme extremism, but that's but that's the direction they're trying to take it. This is this is just one of the most. This would be one of the most radical changes regarding public education that we've seen in this country ever. And it's kind of a stealth part of his agenda, and it really needs to be talked about, and it needs to be on the front burner. That was Will Bunch, author of a must-read new book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about what Biden's student debt relief plan does and doesn't signify, and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weed segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. What happens if Americans sour on public education? If that intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a subscriber.
So I think one of the things that is so fascinating about this moment is that on the one hand, the Biden student debt relief plan is really kind of an, an acknowledgement that an entire way of viewing the world turns out to have not panned out. But on the other hand, it's sort of like, well, okay, what the hell happens next, right? <laughs> like you you did such a nice job of laying out for us this culture of college for all. It's hard for me to imagine that, you know, people aren't going to just stop telling that story. Even as you see kind of some of the same groups that were so instrumental in driving that narrative, kind of quietly shifting the story they're telling, like, okay, Georgetown Center for Education and the Workforce, maybe what we've been saying for the last 10 years that 65% of jobs in the future are going to require a bachelor's degree, like, well, maybe that's not exactly true. But yeah, I'm just so curious to to hear what you think. Is this going to end up being a sort of a one-off and then we go back to the, the same the same kind of theory of change that really hasn't panned out? Or is this the start of seeing, starting to see higher ed as a public good. Yeah, I think we're absolutely at a crossroads here. And um, there are a few ways that this could play out. One of them is that higher education will continue to experience more and more pressure to prepare people for specific jobs, right? We've definitely seen that over the past couple decades. And, you know, on the one hand, it's perfectly reasonable. And there are lots of jobs that really do require education beyond the K-12 level that's really specialized and that often requires the kinds of resources that colleges and universities and particularly research universities have available to them. On the other hand, there's this distorting effect that we see Right? Because lots of things that are valuable as pursuits in higher education don't necessarily lead to a particular job. Right? They change the way you think, they change the way you see the world, but they aren't necessarily pre-career fields. So that, that's one possible outcome is that we see the continued distortion of higher education and this march toward um, you know, job preparation that we've been seeing for the past couple decades. A second is higher education as a public good, where we actually see the opposite of that, right? We see that pressure released to a great extent and uh, you know, some revitalization of some of those fields like the humanities, which have been under attack, uh, both you know, literally and figuratively over the past couple decades. I think a third possible outcome here is something that came up in an episode that we did with Tina Groger, which is thinking about shifting some of the onus for work training back onto employers, right? In that episode with her, something that we talked about was how employers have been all too eager over the years to move the costs and the responsibility for worker training outside of their factories or their corporate offices and into K-12 schools and colleges and universities. And there are lots of models around the world, including, you know, Germany is often one place that is pointed to uh, as a place where employers bear a lot of responsibility for training workers. Um, so, you know, it, I think it's also possible that we will see some investment in this area. There certainly has been in the last 10 years or so investment in trying to create incentives for employers to train workers this way. 
partnerships with higher education. And I think in the most American possible outcome, we'll see all three at the same time, right? We'll see this sort of ungoverned blend of all three of those possible outcomes playing out to different extents in different places. I think the other thing that makes this so both fascinating but also, you know, really unpredictable is that you have this sharp turn among Republicans against higher ed. And you hear a discourse that I've come to think of as almost like extreme vocationalism. And I'm thinking about somebody like Ron DeSantis, who I spend a lot of time thinking about. And he'll he'll <laughs> say things all the time, like, you know, uh, you know, he'd rather have somebody be a teacher if they have military experience than if they went to Shoehorn University, right? Like the only story <laughs> that he tells about higher ed is just a complete waste of time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I can't talk enough about Richard Hofstetter ever. Uh, and anti-intellectualism in American life is uh, a famous text of his. Uh, and it's an old theme in American history, uh, right? This this antagonism towards formal learning uh, and a belief that formal learning is something that not only has little value, but actually corrupts you, right? Makes you worse. Um, and I, I think that that is a powerful narrative if, um, if formal education is something that is leading to power, prestige, um, a kind of claim on resources that quote unquote ordinary people don't have. I think it's harder to make that case though if uh, the doors get thrown open to everybody, right? Um, you and I have been talking lately about the difference between real populism and fake populism. Uh, and right, it's fake populist to just simply attack higher education. Uh, the real populist move, right, rather than stirring up resentment, is actually to throw the doors open and say this is something for everybody. Um, and I think that one of the things we'll see is uh, some contestation between Democrats and Republicans over um, the notion of, you know, what populism is because both parties have laid claim to it uh, in their histories. And I think both are fighting to try to make a claim on the working class. Uh, obviously, Republicans have dominated in rural areas. Uh, Democrats have dominated in urban areas. But, you know, the working class um, stands to benefit from reducing the cost of higher education uh, and from reducing other barriers to entry. Well, Jack, I know you are on the edge of your seat wondering, what are we going to talk about in the weeds? And it's actually, <laughs> it's not unrelated. Do you like my my use of a double negative there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Negative plus a negative. No, a negative times a negative is a positive. So, Friend of the show, John Vallant, who is at the Brookings Institution, wrote a really interesting and I think thought-provoking piece called What If Americans Sour on Public Education? And I think that our listeners who are really, you know, in all sorts of, all different parts of the country are wondering about some of the questions that he raises. So that's what we are going to discuss in the weeds. We love him. And if this topic interests you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, sign up to become a supporter. A little bit of your hard-earned money every month helps us keep the show going. We pay our excellent, excellent producer. Hey, Francisco. And we provide some extras like a custom reading list for each episode. So please support us. And I'd like to introduce uh, a new um, 
upcharge that people can opt into, and that's Schneidtrion, uh, which if you become a Schneidtrion member, uh, your monthly contributions will go towards the purchase of elbow patches and um, pipes and other accoutrements of ivory tower elites. If this sounds like it's something that might interest you, uh, it comes with the bonus of an invitation to the ivory tower egghead party, which happens once a year, uh, where we pointy-headed elitists get together and talk about Bourdieu. Uh, so um, we appreciate your support. And finally, for those who just want the free version of the show and appreciate having open access to it, uh, tell other people that uh, it's free and that you can get all of our back episodes uh, wherever you get your podcasts, including our SoundCloud page where we post everything. Uh, the show has a Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod. We've got a mailbag uh, that you can access through our website, haveyouheardpodcast.com. And we love hearing from you. Thanks for uh, being listeners. And be sure to mention how every episode Jack works in a hilarious gag about a fake upcharge. It's, it's not fake, Jennifer. I'm, I'm, I, what you're revealing is that you haven't joined. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>